Baseball history podcast where the story receiver does not know what the storyteller is going to be telling them. That's right. And that, today, that's you. That's me. I get to sit back and listen, uh, just like the rest of you. Yeah. Last week, I or two weeks ago, I sat back and listened to you tell the story of the 1918 World Series, which was controversial, and I didn't know that. Yes. Uh, if you haven't heard that one, definitely give it a listen, especially. I'm assuming the World Series is on right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're yes. coming at you from Barring a some major, yeah. major <laughs> catastrophe. Yeah. Oh my God! I'm, I'm, no, yeah. continue, continue, that continue. In, Follow us on Twitter <laughs> at Doing Baseball uh, and uh, on Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. Uh, give us a rating if you can on whatever platform you're listening to us on. If they have a review, give us a review. Honestly, we're begging you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please do that. And of course, thank you for listening. Yeah, of course. So we're sticking with the October theme. Yes. And that is playoffs, baby, or at least something to do with the That's playoffs. That's right. I, uh, the postseason, as it's known in baseball, I actually jokingly titled this story Roast Season. Mm-hmm. You're going to find out why. Yeah, Roast Season is generally, you know... Through the fall. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I had a nice roast yesterday, yeah. actually. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Mom. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, okay. I just. I guess we'll just get started here. Oh, nowadays, definitely. Huh? We're into this. Okay, here we go. Uh, like we were saying, since the postseason is upon us, uh, as we usually do, Sean, I wanted to tell a story that takes place during the fabled month of October, mm-hmm. or mostly takes place during that month anyway. Yeah. Um, I mauled over some different happenings. That took place throughout the years and read stories of great triumph and, of course, great defeat. Mm-hmm. As you would. As you would. Uh, there's yeah. lots of that this time you of know, the There's year. a lot of hope built up in October, and there's a lot of letdown, obviously, if you build up that hope and you don't reach your goals. Let me give you a hint, baseball fans out there. Just for your own mental health, baseball is hard, and <laughs> only one team can win. That's right. There's only one winning team. Yeah. Uh, through a lot of this reading, I discovered one article in particular, and I'll mention which one it is later, that had a few different tales, but I ended up focusing on just one of them in the end, and I wanted to tell this story in order to illustrate how a player's legacy is a lot more dependent on the context and narrative of their stats, mm-hmm. rather than just the stats themselves. Okay. Well, like, for a few particular stats, anyway. Yeah. Um, so... I'd like to begin, Sean, by giving you two pitchers' stat lines. Okay. Uh, one is in the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and the other is relatively obscure and the subject of an episode of Doing Baseball. Okay. Okay. Are you ready for to hear the statistics? I'm ready. Give them. Okay. Pitcher one had a 377 ERA in 57 postseason innings, mm-hmm. and pitcher two had a 380 ERA in 90 postseason innings. Oh. Okay. Now, I understand the disparity in innings count, and there's really not much of an argument to be made that would convince me that these two players are of the same caliber, but looking simply at their ERAs in this area, it's hard to tell the difference, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they have like almost a th- or over 30 innings difference, which is 
pretty huge, but you know, maybe one guy doesn't play for a playoff bound team all the time, right? Well, so exactly. like, playoff. you know, it's hard to tell. Yeah, yeah, it's not your fault if you don't make the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. So, anyways, pitcher two, uh, who had the higher ERA, is three time World Series champion and World Series MVP, five time All Star Hall of Famer Jack Morris. Ah. And the other is perennial afterthought Charlie Liebrandt. Do you know Charlie Liebrandt? Charlie Liebrandt? Yeah. Is it Rad? No. Liebrandt? Not... Charlie Liebrandt? Well, you said one of them was from an episode. This episode. Oh! <laughs> oh! That's what I'm talking about. I was trying this to... episode. I'm like, no, we've never done a story on this guy. No, well, we're going to do one right now. <laughs> okay, I gotcha. But have you ever heard of Charlie Liebrandt? We're going to definitely cover Jack Morris, too. But yeah, yeah no, I have not heard of Charlie not... Liebrandt? Yes. Lee Brandt. Lee Brandt. Or Lay Brandt. I don't how know do how you, you spell pronounce it. it. Uh, this is us every episode. <laughs> I know. Uh, L-E-I? Okay. Or, yes, L-E-I-B-R-A-N-D-T. I spelled it wrong right here, but it's yeah. correct up here. Yeah, exactly. So have you heard of him, Charlie Lay Brandt? Mm, it sounds familiar, but no. Well, he probably sounds familiar because as a Jays fan, you're probably very familiar with Charlie Liebrandt. You just may not even realize it. Okay. You've probably watched highlights of him Uh or against him several times. Okay. Um, Anyways, Charlie Liebrandt could be argued, according to Sam Miller's article, Hunches, Home Runs, and Humiliation, Nine Tales of Unsung World Series Heroes for ESPN.com, which is the article I was alluding to earlier. Yep. Could be argued that he could be the greatest starting pitcher who never made an all-star game and who never started an opening day. Wow. Okay. That's a pretty big thing to say. Yes. There's a lot of great pitchers that were never Mm all-stars. But also never started an opening day. You know? Yeah. You know, it's it's two two sort of criteria that sort of narrows it down. Yeah, yeah. uh, Okay, I'd also like to point out that Labrant and Morris had only a 10 win difference in career war mm-hmm. and Morris pitched about 1500 innings more. Mm-hmm. So, but I guess, I mean, you could argue that maybe if Labrant pitched for 1500 more, he accounts it, for a lot more losses as yeah, well. Yeah. Whatever, it goes right? both ways. Yeah. But who knows? Yeah. So Morris in his career had a 43.5 war and a 254 and 186 win loss record, a 390 ERA uh, in, and a one, 0.296 whip in 3,824 innings pitched. Labrant had a 33.4 war, a 140 and 119 record, a 371 ERA, and a 1.32 whip in 2,308 innings pitched. Okay. It's a fair like career, you know? That's a, that's a pretty big career. Anybody that pitches 2,000 innings has definitely had a career. Yeah, that's right. So... Everybody knows Jack Morris as the winningest pitcher of the 1980s, even though Dave Steeb was better. Yeah, way better. I digress. Yeah. (laughs) Winning his first World Series with the Tigers in 1984. His dominance throughout the decade established him as one of the game's premier pitchers. In 1991, he cemented his legacy with another all-star season for the Twins and capped that year with an historic 10-inning complete game shutout victory over, oddly enough, Charlie Labrant's Atlanta Braves in Game 7 of the 1991 World Series. Oh, he was on the Braves. Yes. Okay, I have seen, I've probably seen highlights of that game. I remember, Mm -hmm. I know Jack Morris's 10-inning complete game Mm -hmm. shutout or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. 
And then Morris became a hero in Toronto, as we know, as he became the final veteran piece of the rotation that would put a scrappy Blue Jays team who had been kicking at the door for almost a decade over the top. Yeah, Winfield helped too, though. Yes, yes, of course. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about Jack Morris and his success, no. No, Because he's a fraud and he's a jerk. That's right. We're here to talk about Charlie Labrant and his bad luck. Charles Lewis Labrant was born in Chicago, Illinois, October 4th, 1956. Mm-hmm. Happy belated birthday, Charlie. That'd be. He earned four letters in college playing baseball at the Miami University in Ohio. He attended from 1975 to 1978, where he moved to professional ball after being drafted by the Cincinnati Reds. Charlie made his major league debut on September 17th, 1979 pitched well in only four innings of work, and later was added to the Reds' postseason roster. Liebrandt made his postseason debut a few weeks later when he was called in to face John Milner of the Pirates in the 1979 NLCS. Labrant did his job to retire Milner and was pulled from the mound having succeeded in the first chapter of what would sadly become one of the most disappointing and heartbreaking postseason careers in Major League history. Jesus. This is going to be tragic. Yes. Well, it's not well, it's sort of tragic. I mean, yeah. not the same level of tragic, but you know, just I'm I can't wait if he's so unlucky. Like some pitchers are just you know, some people elevate in the postseason yes. and some people just get remembered. They're great players and they just get remembered for Yes, for what Charlie Lambert is going to be remembered is, for. That's yeah. what I mean. It's rough. Yeah. yeah, so in that article I was talking about for ESPN.com, uh, you can't say that it was because of lack of skill, however, that poor Charlie had such a place in history. In fact, it was his ability and the trust that his managers had in him that allowed him to be in such positions to suffer. So in 1980, Labrant made his first major league start in the fourth game of the season. Charlie's Reds beat the Atlanta Braves 5-0, and Liebrandt earned his first career win in an impressive five-hit shutout. So he's starting out pretty good. But Liebrandt, while uh, went 10-9 in, the, in 1980 and did not look overly promising to the Cincinnati Brass, and he was traded to the Kansas City Royals for Bob Tufts on June 7, 1983. Good old Tuffy. Tufty. Tufty. distant cousin of Duffy and Stuffy yeah of course (laughs) this was likely a welcome move to Liebrandt as the Reds were a team in decline following their glory days as the big red machine and the Royals had cultivated a winning culture in the AL West finishing first or second in the division in all but one of the previous eight seasons and were on the cusp of a World Series run in 1984 Charlie got another taste of the postseason as the Royals faced Jack Morris and the Tigers in the ALCS, and frankly, they were quite overmatched. The Tigers, under veteran manager Sparky Anderson, finished the season 104 and 58, 20 wins better than the 84 and 78 Royals. So, quite a disparity there. Yeah. Detroit took game one handily, 8 to 1, Morris taking the pitching victory on a seven inning. One run, five hit performance. The Royals fought valiantly in game two, but fell five to three in 11 innings, and it was left to Charlie Labrant to keep the Royal season alive as he took to the mound in game three back at Tiger Stadium in Detroit. Charlie was brilliant in his outing, but Tiger pitcher Milt Wilcox was equally, equally determined to send the Royals home 
as he took the bump and retired the KC batters 1-2-3 in the first. Charlie allowed a walk and then a single by Alan Trammell in his own first inning of work, but kept the Tigers off the scoreboard. Wilcox again made quick work of Casey in the second, allowing a walk, but still got back to the Detroit dugout unscathed with a strikeout and two fly balls. And then the Tigers managed to put a scratch into Liebert's line. Barbaro Garby reached on an infield... What? Barbaro Garby... Okay. Reached... Sorry, I just needed you to... That's, that's just the first of many amazing oh. names in this story, my right. friend. Okay. So, once again, Barbaro Garby reached mm-hmm. on an infield single to second base and then was called out on a fielder's choice to third base by Chet Lemon. <laughs> Correct. Chet <laughs> it's Lemon. already paying off. Yeah. All right, keep going. Daryl Evans then singled to center field, which advanced Lemon to third. Lemon then scored on another fielder's choice when Marty Castillo grounded out to shortstop and Evans was forced out at second. Castillo then stole second, advanced to third on a throwing error to second base, and then Lou Whitaker bunted out. So it's just like a fucking calamity. Like, for the record, it sounds like the most reckless strategy ever. It's absolutely <laughs> appalling from somebody that's had to strategize baseball games yeah. before. It's just yeah, like, you just run and bunt, and I don't care if there's two outs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Oh, there's a guy in scoring position. You should definitely bunt, Lou. Yeah, just bunt it out, Lou. Yeah, yeah. I know we've been stealing all these bases with two outs and stuff like that. And even when we're already in scoring. Just, just fuck it. We don't need runs. We yeah. want to see action. Yeah, exactly. That seemed to be the mentality. Anyway, regardless of that fact, it worked, and it was the only run the Tigers would need as Labrant and Wilcox continued to duel for the rest of the game, both pitchers allowing only three hits in eight innings of work. Yeah. But in the end, Chet Lemons taking a third on Daryl Evans' single in the second was the extra 90 feet needed to score the one run the Tigers needed to end the Royals' season and their bid for a pennant in 1984. Damn. Yeah. So So he's, he pitches a great out. game. Right. He got into some trouble, but he mostly got out of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as I say, so I, I was right there. Lou Whitaker bunted with two outs, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just was the final out. Yeah. No, that doesn't make sense. He So on top of the other team being inept at strategy i was gonna say modern strategy of course they're not adept at modern but so he pitches great and they just can't score and mm-hmm. the other team scores on a calamity of place yeah all right yeah. weird that and then sucks. they and then they can never mount anything back and yeah they end the up, series and is they, over yeah so 84 is done yeah so this was charlie's first postseason heartbreak In 1985, the Royals won the AL West division once again and were again underdog in the championship series to the 99-win Toronto Blue Jays. Yes, they were. Hot off their first division win and postseason appearance in franchise history. This this next part's really going to upset me, so get it over with. The Royals gave Toronto a little heartbreak of their own and topped the scrappy Blue Jays in a hard-fought seven-game ALCS in which the Royals fought back from a 3-1 deficit after the first four games. The Royals moved on to face the Cardinals in the '85 World Series. Thank you for making is that, that short, short enough. That for was you? fucking great. Yeah, was thank that you. brief enough for you? Yes, thank you. I really <laughs> didn't want to hear about it. <laughs> I thought you would want that to be brief, so I kept that part brief. There we go. We're not biased here. <laughs> Don't worry. I really stretch out the good part oh, later yeah. on. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. By 1985, Labrant was at the top of his game and was instrumental in the Royals' run to the 85 World Series that season. 
Charlie had a career year and pitched to a 17 and nine record with a two six nine ERA in 237 and two thirds innings of work. Wow, that's pretty fucking that's good, great. eh? That's great. That's pretty good year. Yeah. And manager Dick Hauser trusted him to take the mound for game two of the fall classic, and he proved his worth early on. All right. Ready? Yeah. Labrim was dazzling. First inning, sits down the cards one, two, three. Second inning, sits down the cards one, two, three. Third inning, allows a single to Terry Pendleton and then retires the next three St. Louis batters in order. I don't know who Terry Pendleton, I don't know who Terry, I don't know him personally, but that'd be the guy I'd give a single to. He's going to come up a lot in this. He's a pesky motherfucker. (laughs) I like Terry Pendleton for no reason whatsoever. For some reason, he's just one of those 80s or 90s guys that I just remember with with love. Well, in going through like a bunch of these important games in Charlie Liebrin's career, like he... Pendleton. Pendleton. I would love to have Terry Pendleton on my team by the sounds of things. Okay, fourth inning. Yeah. Uh, Lieber, he retired Ozzie Smith and Tom Herr and then walked Jack Clark, who then advanced to third on a single by Tito Landrum. But the crisis was avoided when Charlie got Cesar Cedeno on a fly ball. All right. Three straight hits for the Royals put two runs on the board in the bottom of the fourth, and Labrant just needed to keep doing what he was doing. And that's what he did. Charlie sat down the Cardinals 1-2-3 once again in the fifth. Ground out, strike out, strike out. Sixth inning, another 1-2-3. Ground out, fly ball, ground out. Seventh inning, Jack Clark fouled out. Tito Landrum grounded out to short. And Cedeno grounded out to third. Eighth inning, Labrant got Pendleton to ground out to first. Daryl Porter flew out to left. And Brian Harper followed suit. Charlie Labrant was dealing. Mm-hmm. So you can understand why manager Dick Hauser wanted to leave his starting pitcher out there to finish the game. So he got through eight. He got through eight. And it's 2 nothing. Yes. Oh. 2 nothing. But from today's standpoint, yeah. yes, what are you hindsight doing? is twenty twenty. <laughs> However, it is difficult to understand why he was left out there so long when the wheels clearly were starting to wobble before they ultimately fell off. Mm-hmm. Charlie returned to the mound for the ninth, looking to close out the complete game shutout victory. Willie McGee led off for the cards with a ground ball double to left field. Maybe you should start thinking about taking him out now. Yep, yep. Winning run at the plate. Right. Liebrink got Ozzie Smith to ground out to third base, which kept McGee at second. Mm-hmm. One away. Tom Hur then flew out to right. Two away. That's right. The Royals were one out from pulling even in the series at a game each. It was at this point that the game began to fall from the grasp of Charlie and the Royals. Jack Clark scored McGee from second with a line drive single to left field, and the Cardinals cut the Kansas City lead in half. Mm-hmm. So 2-1 now. But he, there's two outs. 2-1, two, two outs, yep. Man on first. Yep. Tito Landrum then hit a double to right field no. in the next at bat, and Clark moved to third. Whoa. Whoa. So now we have the tying run at third base and lead run at second base with two outs. Yeah. You going to the bullpen? Yes. I would have gone there months ago. <laughs> Not today. No. <laughs> Hauser doesn't do that. What does he do? He calls for the intentional walk. Okay, all right. So he loads him up. Wait a minute. 
He loads them up. So there's a but force it was, at it was, any base. It was second and third, though, right? Yes. Okay, good. Yes. I thought it was first and no, third. Yeah. No, second and... put the winning run on second. <laughs> <laughs> second and third, and okay. he loads yeah, yeah, them yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's yeah. a little bit. But there's still two outs. Yeah, you need one out. I, I mean, you're getting a, you're looking for the force at any base, I guess. Uh, it depends who the hitter is, but it doesn't. It's some. It makes sense depending on who the hitter is. You want to know who it is? Who? Terry fucking Pendleton. <laughs> <laughs> so Pendleton, Pendleton has a hit. Pendleton comes to the plate in every player's dream scenario, and he clears the bases with a double to left oh, field. Son of a bitch. Four two St. Louis. I love you, Terry, but damn, that's <laughs> yeah. This is on the manager. Yeah. Oh, 100% this on Dick Hauser. Yeah. What is he doing? He's got Quisenberry sitting in the fucking... It was... Well, exactly. There was no reason after the first run scored that you don't take him out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there, no he should have just been out of the game probably earlier, but okay. Right. So, uh, Charlie Liebrandt was finally taken out of the game, was relieved <laughs> by Dan Quisenberry, who came in and intentionally walked Daryl Porter before retiring Andy Vance like... And the side on a fly ball. Did they understand that runners can <laughs> score? <laughs> Apparently not. No, Apparently but like not. they keep walking. Like even the intentional walks. So you got to think in a game like that, you you don't want people on base because no, just get the runner at the plate, idiot. Or at first doing? base. At first. No, he's at second. No, but there's two outs. What? There was two outs this yes, whole but, time. Yeah, but Pendleton hit a double. Yeah, but they're walking two guys. Yeah. When any ground ball, you could have just gone to first base. Right. So if they don't walk the guy in front of Pendleton, Pendleton doesn't bat and hit the double. Also, <laughs> there's not a runner on first base. There's just runner on second. So instead yeah. of three runs scoring, only two runs score. Yeah. Like it's none of it makes sense. No. <laughs> from a like modern analytical standpoint. No. Okay. So where was I? Because we came intentionally walked Daryl Porter for retiring Andy Van Slake on the side on a fly ball. The Royals couldn't muster a hit in the ninth and died a sudden yet painful death in Game 2. Mm. The Royals fought back to 2-1 in Game 3 and then dropped Game 4 as St. Louis took a stranglehold over the series three games to one. In Game 5, the Royals managed to stave off elimination and turned to Charlie Labrant in Game 6 to once again save the season as they had against the Tigers in 1984. I'm sure it's going to go and great. he pitched well before. Yeah, of course. It didn't go well, but he pitched well. Charlie came out strongly once again in the high leverage situation and faced only one above the minimum through six innings. Mm-hmm. But as the Royals seemed to do when Charlie pitched, they could not muster any run support for their hurler. St. Louis again was retired in order in the sixth, and in the eighth inning, Charlie again couldn't keep the cards completely at bay. It was probably like 130 pitches. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> Tito Landrum flew out to lead off. Terry Pendleton singled with a ball that was grounded through the right side. Sedano mm-hmm. drew a walk. Daryl Porter struck out looking. And then Brian Harper delivered an RBI single to center field that scored Pendleton and moved Sedano to second. Ozzie Smith walked as well. And finally, Labrant was lifted for Dan Quisenberry, who came in to get Willie McGee on a ground ball to shortstop, ending the St. Louis threat, and thankfully holding the Cardinals to only one run. See? See how easy it was? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could have just done that three batters ago. Yeah, or the game ago, or yeah. four games ago. Yeah. In the bottom half of the eighth, the Royals again were stifled on offense, managed only a base on balls. It looked like their season was probably over. But as Yogi says, it ain't over 
till it's over. Quisenberry retired the cards in the ninth, allowing a two-out single to Tito Landrum. The game was still in reach for the Royals, and they led off the ninth with back-to-back singles by Jorge Ortega and Steve Balboni. Balboni was then taken out to pinch run for Onyx Concepcion. Oh, yeah. Let's just take a moment to let that name sink in. Onyx is a great name. Onyx Concepcion. It's been been tainted by Pokemon, but... That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Tainted? Depends who you're talking to. Okay, all right. (laughs) Jim Sunderberg then reached on a bunt, but the cards got the lead runner, Ortega, at third base. So now the Royals have got runners at first and second, one out. Hal McRae comes in to pinch hit for, wait for it, Buddy Bianca Lana. Buddy Bianca Lana. Yep. That's being researched as soon as you leave. <laughs> yeah, Concepcion and Sunberg advanced to second and third on a pass ball before McRae was intentionally walked to set up and out at any base. Uh-huh. Okay. So they love the intentional walk. Absolutely. Why not just put a guy on base? Yeah, great. Why not? But it was all for naught as Dane Eorg delivered a walk-off single to right, which scored Concepcion and Sunberg, giving the Royals another chance and another victory. But the decision wasn't for Labrant. So Charlie kind of gets left off the hook there. Yeah. Even though you know he almost had another big uh, World Series heartbreak there. So the Royals took all the momentum from that ninth-inning rally and never looked back. As they absolutely decimated the Cardinals in Game Seven, eleven to nothing. Yeah, they had me worried for a little bit. I was like, I'm pretty sure the Royals win the World Series. Yeah. It doesn't sound like they're going to win the World Series. Yeah, <laughs> and it was their that was their first World Series in franchise history. Yeah. So the next three seasons, Lebrant had respectable results, winning 14, 16, and 13 games, but he was dismal in 1989. And the Royals sent the veteran pitcher off to last place Atlanta, along with Rick Luckin. For Gerald Perry and Jim LaMasters. Yeah. It kind of would suck to get traded to the Braves at that point. Because, yeah. you know, the 1990 Bra- 1990s mm-hmm. and the Braves are notorious for being shitty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Well, this I'm time, joking. I know. I'm telling, I know you are. I'm telling them, not you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Just in case. Just in case. Just in case. You can't tell the thick They probably thick are like, shut up, man. <laughs> I know. Can, yeah. So, in 1990, the Braves finished in last place. Mm-hmm. Labrant went nine and eleven and had an ERA of three sixteen. He finished behind John Smoltz and Tom Glavin in wins, but bested the two future Hall of Famers in ERA, who had three eighty five and four twenty eight respectively. Yeah, he was better than them. His team just didn't perform. That's right. Yeah. The next season of nineteen ninety one, Labrant, along with Glavin and Steve Avery, was a member of one of two trios of Southpaws in MLB history to win 15 games on the same staff. By the time October rolled around in 1991, Atlanta had found themselves in the postseason and made it all the way to the World Series where they would face the Twins. Braves manager Bobby Cox opted to go with the experienced veteran Labrant in Game 1 of the Fall Classic instead of ace Tom Glavin. So, Cox obviously believed, like, we were kind of alluding to that Charlie's troubles in the postseason came down to bad management and bad luck as opposed to bad performance. The, yeah, the lack of skill on Labron's part. And he also knew of Charlie's experience pitching at the Metrodome from his days with Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So he gave the veteran pitcher the vote of confidence and put him in that game. So 
Labert pitched well and kept the Twins off the scoreboard throughout the first two innings. He faltered slightly in the third when he walked Dan Gladden, who then stole second and scored on a single by Chuck Knobloch, who was then called out at second on a 9-3-6 relay. Nice. Jack Morris continued to stifle the Braves' bats. Charlie matched Morris in the fourth, but in the fifth he allowed a leadoff double to deep center field off the bat of Kent Herbeck, then Scott Leis... Leis? L-E-I-U-S? L-E-I-U-S? Yeah, sure. Scott Leis singled to left, and Herbeck moved to third before Greg Gagne stepped to the plate and drove a three-run shot to deep left field, giving the Twins a 4 nothing lead and sending Charlie Labrant to the showers, once again with nothing to show for himself in the postseason. Damn. The Braves gave it a run back in the top of the six, but the Twins quickly took it back in the bottom half. The Braves had little fight left and scored another in the eighth, but it was too little too late, and the Twins took a one nothing series lead and handed Charlie Labrant another postseason loss for his record, all for that one bad inning. Yeah. I'm assuming he's going to pitch again in the series, though. Yep. But he lost his starting job for the series. Ooh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean... Okay. Well, they didn't use him as a starter again anyway. Uh, they used him in game six when he was brought in late out of the pen. The Twins took an early lead in the first inning of game six on four hits, a single from Knobloch, an RBI triple by Kirby Puckett, a single by Scott Leis, and a Shane Mack RBI single. The Braves answered back and tied the game in the fifth on a two-run shot by Terry Pendleton. Of course. Of course, but the Twins quickly went back on top 3-2 to two on a Kirby Puckett sack fly in the bottom half. Steve Avery pitched a fine game for the Braves that day and was lifted after six innings for Scott Erickson, who allowed Mark Lemke to single leading off the seventh, and he was lifted for Mark Guthrie after one batter. Guthrie could not hold the fort. He struck out the first batter he faced in Jeff Blauser, but he then threw a wild pitch to Lonnie Smith, which allowed Lemke to advance to second. Smith then walked to first, and Terry Pendleton came up and singled to second before Guthrie was relieved by Carl Willis. Willis induced a ball up the middle to shortstop by Ron Gant, but Lemke scored on a fielder's choice, and the game was tied at two. The pitching staffs continued to duel it out for another four innings, allowing nobody else to score, and finally in the 11th inning, Bobby Cox turned again to the veteran Charlie Liebrandt, who was looking for a shot at redemption. Is this in Minnesota or in... This, yes, this is in Holden Minnesota. Oh, this okay. is in Minnesota. All right, so it's do or die time and Labram's coming in. That's right. Kirby Puckett led off the inning and had allegedly considered ambushing Charlie with a bunt to lead off the inning. That's a good idea, as we know. Puckett, however, had been convinced by his teammates not to do so. Mm-hmm. And he took the first pitch for a strike. The next two pitchers, Labrant struggled to find the zone, and Kirby worked the count back in his favor to 2-1, and one, and then drove the next pitch over the fence to walk it off and send the series to a seventh game. Labrant was the GOAT once again. Fuck. <laughs> and, I mean, I've seen that highlight, and I didn't mm-hmm. know it was Labrant. Like, mm-hmm. obviously, you you see the highlight, and it doesn't say Liebert gives up a home run. It says Kirby Puckett hits a home run. Game-winning home run in the World yeah. Series. Yeah. yeah. 
So, oh man, I can't believe he was thinking about bunting. Puckett's another guy. Puckett, Kirby Puckett's going to have an episode probably one day, too. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. like naming guys that are going to have episodes. Yeah, you do that a lot. I do. <laughs> I'm just like, hey, I got a list. Uh, <laughs> that guy's on the list. <laughs> and as we mentioned at the top of the show, the Braves suffered another heartbreaking defeat the next night in the one nothing contest that saw veteran Jack Morris pitch a 10-inning complete game shutout in a classic matchup against a young John Smoltz. That gave the Twins their second World Series title in five seasons, and all, and that all but cemented Morris's place in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, but <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. We're not here to debate that. We're not here to debate that yet. Yes, <laughs> but Charlie Labrant would not let this get him down. Of course not. I'm sure 1992 would just be great for him and That's the Braves. Right. He wouldn't let it get him down. No. He came out in 1992 and returned to form, going 15-7 and seven with a 3.36 ERA and a 1.207 whip in 193 innings pitch for the Braves, a club that once again found themselves at the top of the NL East and in the postseason. Against the Pirates. Mm-hmm. And, fun fact here, on September 29th, 1992... Yeah, which oddly enough we didn't talk about on the episode a couple weeks ago. Interesting. Charlie recorded his one thousandth career strikeout. Why the fuck would I care about that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't. You wouldn't. I just saying. I never pulled nineteen ninety two out of hat. You didn't. But he got that. his one th- so one thousandth career strikeout. Yes. And he's been in the league now what like thirteen years almost since seventy nine. Uh, seventy nine. He wasn't really in there very much for seventy nine. So yeah. like twelve years really. Okay, I eleven guess. twelve years. All right. Yeah. The Braves again returned to the World Series after taking down Barry Bonds and Jim Leland's Pirates in the NLCS, this time to face the Toronto Blue Jays, a team who was appearing for the first time in the Fall Classic and who had been knocking on the door for seven years now. In Game 1, the Braves came out looking to avenge themselves from the previous year, and they sent Glavin to the mound against the Jays' ace and Liebrant's nemesis, Jack Morris. Jesus. <laughs> they took the opening contest 3-1. to one. He's not really Liebrant's nemesis. Well, I just kind of framed it like that at the beginning imagine, of the episode. Imagine but. that being your career, though. I'm sure there's guys that, that have had long careers that you just always... There's always that guy across the field from you. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, that guy's your teammate, right? Like Pendleton right. in this situation, like it's just like, oh, you, you know, well, I guess they've been both against each other and mm-hmm. teammates. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting how that works sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Jack Morris, and they took the opening contest 3 1. 3 1, yep. Toronto even the series at, th- at 1 in game 2 following some late inning heroics. Veteran Dave Winfield scored Robbie Alomar on an RBI single in the eighth, and then Ed Sprague became a Toronto folk hero with a two-run shot in the ninth that put the Blue Jays up 5-4. to four. Tom Hankey shut the door, and it was a five-game series. Yeah. Toronto took game three as well with a late-inning comeback and put the series into a stranglehold with another closely contested 2-1 victory in game four. Facing elimination in game five... The Braves sent John Smoltz to the mound against Jack Morris, looking to add another World Series clinching victory to his resume. So it's a rematch from 1991. That's wild. I didn't realize different that at teams, the time, obviously. Different teams. Yeah. yeah. Atlanta took the early lead in the first. Toronto answered back with one in the second. The Braves went up again 2-1 in the fourth. And the Jays answered once again in the bottom half 
But in the fifth inning, the Braves broke it open with five runs to take a 7-2 lead, and they never looked back, staving off elimination for at least one more day and sending the series back to their home at Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm -hmm. So, for Game 6, the Jays sent their hot new trade deadline acquisition David David Cohn. Yeah. That's right. To the mound to face the brave Stephen Avery. And the Blue Jays went to work early. Devon White led off with a single and quickly stole second base. Roberto Alomar grounded out to second but moved White to third with the productive out. Joe Carter came to the dish four for 17 in the World Series with two home runs, then sent a ball out to right field for a double that was eventually called an error on David Justice. Blue Jays took the lead, 1-0. Dave Winfield walked, and then Avery finally retired the side when he got both Candy Maldonado and Kelly Gruber on ground outs. That's great. Yes. Candy Maldonado. I love going back through these names. I know. know? Candy Maldonado is a great one. But, I mean, honestly, I don't know why, but I I, I didn't always think. It's not like I gave it a lot of thought. But Avery, to me, was was a closer or a relief pitcher. I don't know why. But no. they, Atlanta's, it was reared in at this lefty time. Lefty starter. Yeah. No, I don't know why I was thinking that, but it was reared in at this time. Yeah. So where are we? Game four? Game five? No. We're game, game six. Game six. We're Holy game shit. Game six, man. All right. David Cohn worked effectively against the Braves batters, allowing just a single to pesky Terry Pendleton. Of course. Avery settled in in the second, retiring the Jays in order, and... The pitchers both kept their opponents off the board until the Braves evened the score in the third on a sack fly by, you guessed it, Terry Pendleton. Terry Pendleton. Of course. So it's one-to-one after three innings. And in the fourth, the Jays would go back on top when Candy Maldonado smoked the one nothing pitch from Avery deep to left field over the head of Deion Sanders and into the seats. Palms got a little sweatier in Atlanta. Gruber then grounded to short. Pat Borders doubled to left. Manny Lee struck out looking. Cone drew a walk, and finally Devon White singled to left field, but Borders was called out at the plate trying to come home, and Braves fans were thankful that the damage was minimal at just the one-run deficit. Cone shut the door in the fourth, setting down Bream, Blouser, and Barry Hill 1-2-3. Pete Smith replaced Avery on the Atlanta mound for the fifth and allowed just a no-threat one-out single to Joe Carter, then got the next two Jays, Winfield and Maldonado, on a line-out and a ground-out. Smith pitched in the sixth again and kept Toronto off the board, allowing just a single by Manny Lee. Cone answered back with a zero of his own, retiring the Braves in their own sixth with no threat but a walk by Sid Bream, and Cone's night was over. Mm Mm-hmm. In the seventh, Smith again kept the Jays at bay. Todd Stottlemyre took over for Cone in the bottom half and retired the first two Braves batters, Mark Lemke and Mark Treadway. Otis Nixon then singled to left and Cito Gaston brought in David Wells to get Ron Gant and finish off the side in the seventh, but Nixon was caught stealing and the Braves still trailed 2-1. to one. Wild. Also, the fact that David Wells was in the Blue Jays' bullpen at that time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Come in for the one batter. Yeah. Uh, the two clubs battled back and forth through at the eighth, putting another zero on the board each, and the same for the top of the ninth. In the bottom half of the ninth, with time and outs running out, the Braves had the unwelcome task of facing Tom Hankey. Jeff Blauser, 
Put a chink in the Terminator's armor right away, though, and singled to left. Catcher Damon Berryhill bunted Blouser to second, was out at first on the sacrifice. Lonnie Smith then pinch hit for Lemke and managed to draw a walk. So now there's men on first and second, one out. Francisco Cabrera then came in to pinch hit for the pitcher, Mark Wallers, but he lined out to left, which brought Otis Nixon to the plate with two outs, and on a two-strike pitch, the Braves down to their final strike of the season, Otis singled to left on a ground ball through the hole between third base and shortstop. Blouser rounded third and tied the game at two. At two. Mm-hmm. Hanky got Ron Gant to fly out to center, and they were headed for extras in Game 6 of the World Series. Dun-dun-dun. This gave another opportunity to our old buddy, Charlie Labrant. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure it goes well. No, I'm sure it goes great. Yep. <laughs> so Charlie's back in. He's It's the 10th? Yes, it's the 10th. All right. So Labrant sat down Candy Maldonado on a ground ball to short then allowed Kelly Gruber to reach on a line drive to short right center, and then retired Pat Borders on a fly ball to left, two away. Gaston then pinch hit Pat Tabler, who we all know was a baseball player. He's a baseball player. (laughs) For Manny Lee, but Tabby lined out straight to the pitcher, Liebrin. Henke started the 10th and retired pesky Terry Pendleton, and then gave way to Jimmy Key, who retired both David Justice and Sid Bream on ground outs, and they were off to the 11th inning. Charlie Labrant returned to the mound and faced his counterpart Jimmy Key, who popped out foul to first base, and then things once again started to get dicey for Charlie. He hit the next batter, Devon White, who made no, big, no move to avoid an inside pitch, and then allowed a line drive single to center field by Robbie Alomar. Joe Carter then flew out to deep center field, and Charlie was one out away from escaping the jam. But Dave Winfield's coming up. This brought the Jays' big off-season acquisition to the plate in veteran Dave Winfield, who in 42 World Series at-bats had not had an extra base hit. Really? Yeah. I watched that game today, and I heard them say that on the broadcast, so I wrote it down. Great research. That's right. Winfield stepped to the dish with two on and two out and hoped to be as clutch as advertised. Labrant started Winfield away for a ball and then evened the count with a swinging strike. He checked Devon White back to second and peered in for the call from Barry Hill before burying the next pitch in the dirt 2-1. Charlie poured in a fastball on the next pitch for a called strike and evened the count at 2 and then missed low and away as Winfield worked the count full. And on the next pitch, the veteran ripped the breaking ball from Charlie down the left field line for a two-run double and a 4-2 Toronto lead. Heartbreak for Charlie once again. I can still hear what's his name. Uh, who's the announcer? Tom Cheek? No, not Tom Cheek. Bob Costas? Costas. Down the line for a base hit. Yeah. I don't know. Oh, I heard it a... this afternoon. You heard it? I That's right. I'm glad you deflected from my terrible Costas. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do Costas either. He solemnly retired Candy Maldonado to end the inning, and the Braves' season was all but over, as they mustered some hope against Jimmy Key, manufacturing one run in the ninth before Mike Timlin came in for the final out, a 1-3 bunt ground out by Otis Nixon, and for the first time, the World Series flag flew north of the border. 
The Toronto Blue Jays, your world champions. And That's once right. again, Nixon bunting with two outs. Yes. <laughs> what is he doing? Well, I mean, I mean, it's not like he could Nixon could hit a home run. He hit like four in his career, but he might hit a double. But still. That's yeah. better he than hit a, a double bunt. earlier. Yeah. Or a single or whatever it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. That offseason, Charlie was traded to the Texas Rangers, which is another just horrible heartbreak. Yeah, that doesn't work out well. <laughs> they weren't good in the 90s. No, well, I think they won. They were like the division leader in like 94 when the season in, but they were <laughs> sub 500 or something like that. Oh my God. That's <laughs> probably a whole other story. Yeah. Uh, his numbers fell off significantly, going 9 and 10 with a 455 ERA and a 142 whip in 150 innings of work. He made his last MLB appearance on September 21st, 1993 versus Seattle. And you want to take a guess who? No, it was 94. You said 93. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm saying. 93. 93. Oh, yeah. yeah you yeah. want to know whose last start was against by chance? Well, like pitcher? Yeah, pitcher. Who the matchup was? Against Seattle? Yeah. In 1993. Yeah. Randy Johnson. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? Labrant was lifted after just three and two-thirds innings, allowing three earned runs on six hits. He walked two and struck out none. And that was the last of Charlie Labrant's days on the MLB mound. He retired after a solid 14-year career in the majors, in which he collected, as we were mentioning before, a 33.4 war and had a career 371 ERA. And a 132 whip, 140 wins, and 1,121 strikeouts in 2,308 innings pitched. Uh, finally, from his Wikipedia page, Liebrandt and his wife, uh, Corrine, have four children, a daughter, and three sons. He and his family continued to make their home in the Atlanta area after his retirement, and he coached his son's high school baseball teams in Marist School, or at Marist School. Yeah. The youngest son, Brandon, plays in Major League Baseball for the Miami Marlins. Ah, like the big leagues or little leagues? I mean, minor leagues. <laughs> I believe the big leagues. I don't know. I didn't like look any further into uh, that, but he's at least in the Marlins system, or yeah. was. What's his name? Uh, Brandon Labrant, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, his middle son, Brody, was a starter at Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia, and Labrant's oldest son, Ryan, is a, a physician in New York City. Yeah. So, Sean, that is the story of Charlie Liebrin and his bad luck in the postseason. He really uh -huh. doesn't have a heart, really does have a heartbreaking story because a lot of the time, if philosophy, the philosophy of the game was different back then, he may not have been left in to suffer in the situation he was quite obviously struggling in. Yeah, no, and he just had some tough luck matchups against some really good pitchers that's true too he's like the antithesis of morris essentially i love that you compared those two at the because mm -hmm. honestly if librant is if as a couple of those things yeah. go the other way yeah. in those games especially too yeah. right yeah no because i mean that's the thing is honest you want my true honest opinion is neither of them belong in the hall of fame no no exactly uh, I don't the think argument's so not because this guy's in the hall of fame this guy should be it should be they both don't belong in the hall of fame but that's like a, a fantastic career and, like, honestly, to be in that many World Series losses, mm -hmm. I mean, he got his one, right? He got his one. He got Kansas. his 85 World yeah. Series, yeah. yes. So but I like, don't feel he, as bad for he him. He didn't really contribute, though. He no. almost, like, cost the team uh, yeah, yeah, in no. a lot of ways, right? But no, not, was... Well, not really him, just, like, you know, the poor management did. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, honestly, that's great, though, is, is I don't know. Fun to fun to learn about guys like that because you're right. I definitely have watched highlights of this guy, whether it's the the Kirby Puckett game or the 1992 World Series, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he's it just seems to be like 
he's he's not really like Lenny Randall, and he's like the Forrest Gump of like baseball, but he's kind of like the Forrest Gump of baseball, like in these all these poor highlights. It's yeah. like, oh, it's Charlie Liebrink getting screwed by the baseball gods again. Oh my, what did this guy do? You know. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I I looked it up. His son is is in the majors. His son actually has pitched nine innings with the Miami Marlins. Oh, nice, good for uh, him. But it was last year, so maybe he wasn't up this year. He's 27. He made mm. his debut, and he only pitched in five games. But he did pretty good. Yeah, um, that's good. Yeah, that's good. Anyways, thanks so much. Uh, yeah, that's Charlie Liebert. Charlie Liebert. Uh, tune in next time, and we'll uh, bring you more baseball history. And I don't know. Maybe we're going to get that episode two of Spalding one yeah, of these days. Yeah, that's going to come one of these days. That'll be here soon. Don't yeah, worry about well. that. But until next time, follow us on Twitter, at Doing Baseball. And on Instagram at doing dot baseball, yep. and uh, give us a rating review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Oh, thanks, thanks a lot for listening to us, and uh, yeah, yeah, sweet. I'm Sean, and I'm Ed, and we were uh, doing some baseball. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, bye. <laughs>